You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson is on the brink of history. One step closer to being the first black woman to sit on the Supreme Court in its more than 200-year history. This committee's action today is nothing less than making history. I'm honored to be part of it. I will strongly and proudly support Judge Jackson's nomination. That's Judiciary Committee Chairman Senator Dick Durbin at the start of more than three hours of debate over Jackson's nomination today. Three hours of basically the same arguments we heard during more than 30 hours of hearings and questioning last month. But Durbin did make one significant observation. We don't agree on much in the Senate, but not one senator on this committee has questioned that she is well qualified. The committee, like the full Senate, is split evenly between Democrats and Republicans. And, as expected, they deadlocked on moving her nomination out of committee 11 to 11. The first time that's happened in about three decades. Her nomination is still on track to be voted on by the full Senate before the end of the week. Joining me is Carl Tobias, a professor at the University of Richmond Law School. What did you hear from the senators? Well, each of them really, it seemed like, were reviewing what they had already talked about and asked her about during the hearing. And so there was virtually no new information that was transmitted. I think there was pretty substantial agreement that the process is broken, but that wasn't why they were there. So the Republicans continued to criticize her the way they had before. They all were relatively careful to say that she is a very nice person, that they liked her family, that she was well qualified, they didn't have questions about her qualifications, but that they disagreed with her on certain issues. A number of them uh, criticized her as someone who would be an activist judge, though there isn't a lot of evidence of that on the lower courts where she served. But Also, they were concerned about these child pornography sentences 
and that she was below a certain level, though Democrats refuted that. And then there were some other minor criticisms of her, but pretty much in the same vein, that she would be an activist judge, that she might be soft on crime, though that's hard to discern from her record. And that's what really the Republicans were talking about. Democrats were saying she's extremely well qualified and reminding everyone that this would be an historic appointment and that she'd clerked at all three levels of the federal judiciary, including for Justice Breyer. And that was all ground that had already been plowed. The Senate advice and consent, they all concede that Judge Jackson is well qualified. Is it up to them to decide whether they agree with her philosophy, which she says she doesn't have a judicial philosophy? Is it up to them to agree with stances she takes on different matters? No, no. But there are varying views among senators historically and in the present about exactly what is entailed in advice and consent. Some present senators and historically have deferred to the president, saying he's the person who's elected by the entire country and so can nominate and is entitled to some deference. On the other end of the spectrum are a number of senators who feel that the hearings must be very rigorous and that they're entitled to ask any number of questions, especially about how the person would discharge the duties of justice on the Supreme Court. Advice and consent was put into the Constitution just to be a check on the president in case the president sent someone who either was unqualified or worse, you know, had ethical problems or that type of thing. But I think the real focus of the debate today, and probably since Robert Bork in 1987, is whether ideology of the nominee is a relevant consideration. And I think today everybody has sort of come around to the fact that, yes, that is relevant. You can't just ignore that. And so a lot of the back and forth today was about that from both sides. Taking Justice Kavanaugh's hearings out for a moment, because there were specific charges made, new charges during his hearings, but I don't recall the hearings for Justice Gorsuch or Justice Coney Barrett being this personal, so many personal attacks. I don't recall that. I think that's right. I don't think there were personal attacks in either one of those. I suppose the Republicans would say they they didn't think they were engaging in personal attacks, but I think Democrats felt that some of the questions were inappropriate or really reduced to personal attacks on a nominee who's extremely well qualified. Taking Justice Kavanaugh's hearings out of the equation for a moment, because that was based on allegations of misconduct that were lodged during the hearings themselves. I don't recall the hearings for Justice Gorsuch or Justice Amy Coney Barrett being this personal, so many personal attacks. Oh, I think that's right. Um, I don't think there were personal attacks in either one of those. And I, I suppose the Republicans would say they they didn't think they were engaging in personal attacks, but I think Democrats felt that some of the questions were inappropriate or really reduced to personal attacks on a nominee who's extremely well qualified. 
What I found curious is the about face of Senator Lindsey Graham, who supported her for the D.C. Circuit. And I know that doesn't mean you have to support a person for the Supreme Court, but he really made some personal attacks on her. And today he said that, you know, if they were in charge, she wouldn't be up there. Well, we've heard those attacks, those kinds of threats before, and that's what Mitch McConnell is leader of his party in the Senate has been doing for a long time now, ever since Obama became president in 2009, and certainly what we saw in 2016 with Merrick Garland, and then in 2020 with Amy Coney Barrett. So I think the leader is leading the rest of them. Um, And so that's what I think you heard Graham saying today. Which is unfortunate because I think everybody on the committee pretty much agrees that the process is broken at the Supreme Court level, and now it's trickling down as well to the lower courts, all of which is unfortunate for the judiciary, for the president, and for the Senate. 11 to 11, what happens now? Well, when that happened, and the history is a little checkered because if you remember back fairly recently, both uh, Bork and Clarence Thomas, I think. Clarence Thomas had a tie vote in in Judiciary Committee, and I think Bork was voted down. But at that point, the Democrats agreed, uh, and I think they had the majority, to send them to the floor anyway and have a vote. And that is another sign that this has all changed, because that's the relevant precedent, the most recent relevant precedent. So why not then go ahead and have the final vote? But I think because there's a tie and that custom's gone out the window, apparently, it means that you must discharge the person from committee. It really is just a procedural hurdle that will easily be resolved, but it just takes more time. So 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 that you have to have another vote on the floor to discharge her from committee, and you need a majority. And it's clear that she will have a majority. So Chuck Schumer has done this before during the Biden administration. Yes, exactly, with some lower court nominees. I believe one for the Ninth Circuit and a few others, and there are five or six lower court nominees on the floor who tied in committee, and so they would have to be discharged as well. But, again, it takes a half an hour to do it. There's some paperwork, but they just have to vote on that, and then the person comes out of committee. Then there would be a cloture vote on the floor to cut off debate at some point and then you would have the debate, 15 hours for each side, and then a confirmation vote. So wait, there's debate before the debate? What's the debate on before the 15-hour debate? There may be some debate uh, starting in, but, but the rule in Rule 22 of the Senate rules, it talks about clo- post-closure debate time and how much there is allotted for that. And so... Um, you cannot have a vote until those 30 hours are used up or the Democrats will cede most of their time. So effectively you're talking about the 15 hours of possible debate debate allowed for Republicans. Um, And then uh, you have the final vote. I've read that the last time that so many questions were asked about criminal law, about crime, was when Justice Thurgood Marshall was before the court, the first black justice. I don't know if that's because it's a dog whistle 
because he was black and because she's black or if it's because they were, you know, defended criminals in the past? Well, alleged criminals. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And, yes, she was a federal public defender for three years. But we know that people are entitled to representation after Gideon versus Wainwright, 1963 Supreme Court case. And um, so you have both sides represented in criminal matters, and it's a constitutional right. Um, and so, um, and, I, and a number of the GOP senators, to their credit, admitted today that, that people are entitled to representation, and they think that makes for a better system. And so uh, I think this is unfortunately tied up with the uh, soft-on-crime um, political agenda that one party has going into the 2020 midterms, and we're just likely to see that um, come to the fore. And so there, there is a, a huge fight brewing over um, the question of whether Democrats are soft on crime and whether Republicans intend to use that in 2022 um, to capture the Senate. And it's pretty obvious that that's what's going on in committee in this area of discussion. We know she's going to become the next Supreme Court justice. Does any of this tarnish her? You know, the hearings and the accusations made, does it tarnish her when she takes her place on the court? Well, hopefully not. Um, It will for some people who are extremely partisan, but I think most Americans uh, and I think the polling shows most people uh, view her quite favorably coming into the hearings. And I think she uh, comported herself in a, a very strong and uh, excellent way. And um, I think even some Republicans may have uh, admitted that her judicial temperament was clear in the hearings, that it was very balanced and she's very fair-minded. And so... Uh, that's an important attribute uh, on all the federal courts, is to have balanced judicial temperament, and she displayed that over and over again. Thanks, Carl. That's Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 
5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Champagne corks popped in a historic win for organized labor. An upstart labor union pulled off a stunning upset and won 55 percent of workers' votes at the Staten Island warehouse of Amazon, a company that's managed to keep unions out of its U.S. operations for more than a quarter of a century. Chris Smalls, a fired employee who led the fledgling union to victory, said it's time for businesses to realize the power workers have when they band together. We, we got the juggler. We went for the juggler. And we went for the top dog because we want every other industry, every other uh, business to know that uh, things have changed. My guest is labor law expert Kate Andreas, a professor at Columbia Law School. This marks the first time a group of U.S. workers have successfully voted a former union in Amazon's 27-year history, a company that seemed to be unbeatable. Would you say it's a watershed moment, a significant moment? How would you define it? My guest is Kate Andreas, a professor at Columbia Law School. Absolutely. This is an extraordinary victory by the workers at the Staten Island facility. And I would say it is a significant moment and could well represent a turning point for organizing both for workers at Amazon and workers more generally, although it's too early to say. It's always an uphill battle to establish a union. Over the past few decades, efforts to unionize at the most prominent non-union companies in America have almost always ended in failure. But was this even more uphill than usual, or was it basically the same as trying to start a union elsewhere? Well, I think in some ways, these workers had even a greater challenge than in many other contexts, because Amazon has been so resolutely anti-union and anti-worker. Amazon has spent millions of dollars on anti-union consultants and has consistently fought very hard against unionization. And so the workers had a significant uphill battle. On the other hand, we're now living in a time of a very tight labor market, and the workers recognized the power that they had. And we saw particularly effective leadership from workers within the facility in building this grassroots union. I mean, the law really is stacked against workers, and it enables employers to campaign fairly viciously against union organizing. And Amazon did that here. And that's why this victory is so stunning and so important, the fact that the workers were able to overcome really intense anti-union campaigning, including firing workers who supported the union, many, many mandatory meetings at which Amazon, you know, offered anti-union propaganda. And much of that is legal. And to the extent Amazon potentially is violating the law, the remedies are very limited. So historically, it's been very hard for workers to overcome the fact that the law is stacked against workers' right to organize. But here they were able to do so. It's really very important. The ALU, the Amazon Labor Union, is an upstart union. It's not aligned with an established labor union, yet it beat one of the world's most powerful companies 
with not that much help from organized labor and with limited funds. How did it do that? The workers here wanted to change their conditions, and they built a very strong organization among themselves. And in some sense, that's always what makes unions succeed. So whether there's a a well-funded national union or whether it's an upstart union, what's critical to success is when workers themselves are involved in building an organization to change their conditions. So they did it here through very effective organizing, through building connections across racial and gender and ethnic divides, organizing in multiple languages, and through effective use of social media, but also through just talking about the problems at work and committing to one another that they wanted to build an organization to change them. You know, we hear a lot about the organizer, the the top organizer. How much of this is due to his push and his personality? It's hard for me to say, but I would say that union organizing always involves more than just one leader. He was clearly a very um, powerful leader, but there were many other workers who were involved as well. I'm just wondering, and I don't know if if there's an answer to this, but is it better to have an upstart union or to have a union with the backing of organized labor? Well, I think that whether there's a national union involved or an upstart union, what's critical is that workers themselves are involved in the fight and their solidarity among the workers. And we've seen that plenty of times with national unions as well. So there's been lots of examples, for example, the Justice for Janitors campaign or the successful organizing of healthcare workers around the country with national unions. The key is that workers are involved in building their own organization. And there are advantages to being with a larger organization in the sense that there's more resources that can be brought to bear on contract fights. But this also shows that what is critical is that workers themselves are involved in building the organization. And sometimes that happens through these more grassroots endeavors. I'm just wondering, and I don't know if if there's an answer to this, but is it better to have an upstart union or to have a union, you know, with organized labor? Well, I think that whether there's a national union involved or an upstart union, what's critical is that workers themselves are involved in the fight and their solidarity among the workers. And we've seen that plenty of times with national unions as well. So there's been lots of examples, for example, the Justice for Janitors campaign or the successful organizing of healthcare workers around the country with national unions. The key is that workers are involved in building their own organization. And there are advantages to being with a larger organization in the sense that there's more resources that can be brought to bear on contract fights. But this also shows that what is critical is that workers themselves are involved in building the organization. And sometimes that happens through these more grassroots endeavors. A key part of ALU's strategy was to request an NLRB vote as soon as it got petition signatures from the bare minimum, 30 percent of the workforce. And you need 50 percent to win. What do you think of that strategy? Yeah, I mean, it's fairly unusual. In the past, unions have typically sought to get about 70 percent of workers signed up before filing for an election because historically the effect of an anti-union campaign by an employer was to erode union support. So this suggests that maybe the dynamics are different now, that there's much more public support for unionization, and workers also have a sense of their labor market power. And so it could well be that it's now possible to win union elections even with hostile anti-union campaigns by employers with a lower kind of threshold of support because workers are less likely to become scared given their increased labor market power and also the growing recognition that workers can win unions and can um, make changes at work. 
You referred to this. Federal Chair Jerome Powell recently called the labor market tight to an unhealthy level. Does that give fresh power to a new push for unions? It does, because workers have an understanding that it, that they can't just be easily replaced and that they have more bargaining power to demand better conditions and higher wages, safer working conditions and more dignity at work when it's harder to find workers. So would you say this will galvanize labor activists and workers beyond Amazon to unionize? I think it is likely to have that effect, particularly when combined with the recent victories of workers at Starbucks, as well as the increased union activity among journalists, among teachers, among all sorts of different workers. But it's a little too early to say whether this will really mark a turning point for labor in the United States. And tell us what's been happening with labor in the United States, let's say, the past decade, because there have been a lot of Supreme Court cases that have cut down the power of labor unions. Just give us a general kind of overview. Yeah, so unions once represented about a third of the labor market. And during that period, there was a great deal more equality in the United States. Unions were effective at raising wages for workers um, and also for giving workers more of a voice in the political system. But since um, really since the 1970s, unions have declined and there have been a series of hostile um, anti-worker decisions by the Supreme Court, particularly in recent years making it harder for workers to organize unions and making it easier for employers to weaken unions. And the result of the decline of unions has been in part growing inequality and a decrease of political power for working people generally. Let's talk about what happens next at this Amazon in Staten Island, because they're a long way away from a contract. The company has until April 8th to dispute the results. And in an emailed statement, Amazon signaled a long legal battle could lie ahead. It said it was evaluating our options, including objections based on the inappropriate and undue influence by the NLRB. So what do you read into that? And what can Amazon do at this point? I mean, that suggests that Amazon intends to continue to fight the organizing effort and not to comply with its duty under the law to bargain in good faith. It is obligated under the law to sit down and bargain with these workers and to do so in good faith. But that suggests to me that they will file multiple legal challenges and attempt to delay and postpone their obligation to bargain. The notion that the NLRB was inappropriately interfering in the election by enforcing the law and filing a suit against what the NLRB believes to be an illegal firing is really a novel and questionable argument. And I don't expect that Amazon will prevail if it decides to bring that argument forward, but it could very well use those legal challenges to delay. And in that case, workers will need to continue to organize and to put community pressure and public pressure on Amazon to urge it to comply with the law and sit down and bargain in good faith. Is there a time limit for, you know, the workers organizing efforts? So the law obligates Amazon to sit down and bargain and to do so in a timely manner. However, it is not at all uncommon for employers to refuse to do so while they litigate a case. And so it could be quite a lengthy process during which Amazon refuses to bargain while it pursues legal challenges. But the union doesn't lose its status during that period. Is it more than a year usually in negotiations um, with employer? 
So typically, once there's an established union, employers and unions sit down and negotiate regularly, as we've seen with the baseball players and we've seen with GM and we see with Ford. And it's, it's actually quite can often be mutually beneficial. But frequently with first contracts and particularly with a company like Amazon that has so staked its efforts on preventing unionization, in those contexts of the first contract, we often do see very lengthy delays. And although, again, the law obligates Amazon to bargain and to bargain in good faith, it doesn't obligate them to agree to a particular contract. And it doesn't give the board, the National Labor Relations Board, the right to come in and impose a contract. Instead, it just obligates bargaining. And so in order to force that bargaining to occur, if Amazon continues to be intransigent, the workers will really need to use their collective power, protest potentially a strike, and bringing to bear public pressure on the company to urge it to comply with the law and do the right thing and negotiate a fair contract. Would you say a contract is 90% certainty, 80% certainty, 100% certainty? Very hard to predict. I think it'll depend on whether the workers are able to continue to you know, maintain their collective organization and Also, the more they're able to win elections at other warehouses, the more power they will have in bringing Amazon to the bargaining table. And there are additional elections scheduled. Do you think our country will ever go back to the time when unions were such a dominant force? Again, I think it's really hard to predict, but I do think that workers in the United States want a better life. Um, They want more dignity on the job, more rights on the job. They want to be paid enough to have a decent life for themselves and their children. So I think there's widespread interest in having organization among workers so that workers have a voice on the job. Whether or not um, they'll be able to achieve it, I think is still an open question. The Supreme Court, is it twice in two opinions that the Supreme Court has cut back on union rights in recent years? I would say there are three important opinions in recent years that have cut back on workers' collective action rights. One was the Janus case, where the Supreme Court said that all public sector workers have to be right to work, meaning that workers who are covered by a union contract can't be required to pay fees, even fees that um, cover just the cost of the contract and the cost of the representation that they receive. So basically, the Supreme Court transformed all public sector worker unions into open shop unions, which creates a free rider problem because it means that workers can receive the benefits of a union contract, but without paying for the cost. And the Supreme Court did that by employing a very novel and aggressive theory of the First Amendment. Um, A second important case was the Supreme Court held that employers can force workers to waive their right to proceed through class actions or collective legal actions and instead to arbitrate their claims individually. So that was basically saying that um, the NLRA, which protects workers' right to engage in collective action, that that right can be waived through mandatory arbitration agreements. So that's related to unionization, but it's really more about collective organizing rights. And then just this past term, the Supreme Court said that the state of California could not require employers to give access to farm worker organizers to farms in order to talk to workers um, without compensating employers. That that basically requiring access in order to enable workers to organize the union violated employers' property rights. So what's Congress doing? So there's a bill in Congress called the PRO Act that would reform labor law and make it significantly easier for workers to organize unions and critically for them to win first contracts. It has passed the House 
It has not yet passed the Senate, but it would significantly alter the landscape so that many more workers could successfully organize unions when they want to do so. Thanks, Kate. That's Professor Kate Andreas of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.